And isn't that interesting? Have you ever considered yourself to be a... Uh, we know that Christ, of course, is prophet, priest, king, capital P, capital P, capital K, but isn't it interesting to think of ourselves as prophet, priests, and kings? Prophets because we declare the word of God. Priests because we present ourselves a living sacrifice of thankfulness. Also because uh, we minister the word of God to those around us. And then a king to fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life. That's, that's, I like that. That's nice. And we have a lot of... Uh, we have a lot of Dutch folks amongst us today, or more, more than usual in a sense. We have Mr. DeGrove in the house, so it's it's a uh, this is the this is the the Heidelberg Catechism is a Dutch Reformed um, catechism. That's why I mentioned that. So, and of course, the Reformed Church has always looked at that as uh, as certainly a valid uh, declaration of the faith, and so that's why we're saying it here. But um, that's 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 a glorious way to to present what it is to be a Christian. All right, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, and uh, actually, Mr. DeGro, he's usually in Lubbock with us, and then Easton, he's usually in Lubbock with us, so we, if, you ever, if you're ever in Lubbock and you want to go to a service there, let us know, and well, there's a lot of overlap, so that's good. Anyway, so Mark chapter 9, so what we're looking at today is, I, I think it's probably the most under, underrated, underestimated story in the life of Christ that we, we I mean, I t- it's, it's up there with the resurrection, it's up there with the ascension, it's up there with the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and it's always kind of on the back burner. And, and of course, we're talking about the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Christ is one of the most monumental, catastrophic, most glorious events in the life of Christ. But, you know, am I wrong? It's, it's always kind of relegated to the back. Nobody really talks about it in the same way we talk about all the other things. And, so, and that's, that's to our discredit. And so hopefully today uh, we, we will see that there's, there's a lot going on here that, that needs to be um, more front and center as we think about the life of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray now for the Holy Spirit, and then we'll look at this. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us grace, O Lord. Illuminate our eyes, open our eyes, open our minds to the truth of Christ, the glories of Christ, especially as we... As we, uh, as we behold this, this, this strange and, and glorious passage here, please, O oh God, give us grace to do justice to it. Glorify Christ, honor Christ, help us, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 9, and I'll read 1 through 7. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son, listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Now, the whole, the whole gist of this passage, it's, it's critical that you read this passage in light of what we've seen already. Remember what we saw last week? Christ is with the crowds, and he's telling the crowds that they're going to suffer persecution and rejection and ultimately death because they follow Christ. And so when you see in verse 1, it says, And Jesus was saying to them, he's talking about the crowd that he is, 
that he just said that to. You know, in other words, remember he's saying, this is, if you wish to follow me, this is what it means. You have to deny yourself, you have to take up your cross, you have to follow after him. And then he's talking about what's it profit a man to gain the whole world, forfeit his soul. And, and in, in light of that context, he turns and he says, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death. And here's the key phrase here, okay? Until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And if you look at this passage and you ask yourself, who is this talking about, number one, and what event is he talking about, number two? Those are the key phrases there, okay? Who is the they here who are standing there? When you think of uh, Christopher Hitchens, he's an old, he's, now he's dead, but he's an atheist, and, and you can hear him debate Christians, and, and he'll debate Christians on this passage. And he'll say, Jesus Christ was a fraud, because of this passage and other passages, like in Mark 13, when he's, he's talking about um, uh, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But Christopher Hitchens reads this as something that Christ meant to take place that never took place in his lifetime. Does that make sense? So most of the time, a lot of times, when Christians read this passage or passages like this, they automatically assume, okay, boom, he's talking here about the second coming, the second advent. The return of Christ. But here, and, and this is even more explicit than when, he, when he's dealing with this in Mark 13, but here it's very explicitly stated as far as the time, the time frame that we're dealing with. He tells them, okay, there are some of those who are standing here, right here, right? Those in this crowd who will not taste death, and that's a Semitic reference for a violent death. They will not taste death. They will not, they not, they will not experience this violent death that I have just spoken about until this event that brings the kingdom of God in with power takes place. And so the kingdom of God there, that's an easy one because we've already seen this in Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 4. That's a reference to the work of Christ on earth. Once Christ takes on flesh, once Christ comes to earth in the first advent, the kingdom of God has come to earth with power. But here he's talking about it in another sense. He's talking about a very specific event, obviously. He's saying that there's an event that's going to take place that people here are going to see. What is that event? Now, you can look at it, and some people, they'll say, well, this is the resurrection. This is the, this is the ascension. This is the, the, the curtain of the temple being torn in two. This is um, Pentecost. This is AD 70. But here's what I'm very convinced of as far as what Christ is talking about here. He's talking about what he says in verse 2. He's talking about the transfiguration. And the way that we can know this is, turn with me to 2 Peter. Okay, Who are the three people that Christ is going to call to the mountain to witness the transfiguration? It's Peter, James, and John. Well, in 2 Peter, of course, Peter wrote Peter. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us, and this is kind of the key in my mind to unlocking what Christ is talking about here. Peter chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, when we may know to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, again, you're still like, okay, what do you mean? Is he talking to the resurrection? Is he talking the ascension? What's he talking about, right? They saw something, and he's saying, we beheld this, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's exactly what he's going to say today at the transfiguration when the cloud comes about and then the father speaks. But look, just in case, I mean, just in case you you missed that part in verse 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven 
when we were with him on the holy mountain. He's talking about the transfiguration. He's saying this is an event of power. This is an event of, of majesty, of great honor, of great glory. The cloud shows up. The Father speaks. What event are we talking about? The transfiguration. And it's important enough for Peter to mention it after the fact. Right? He's writing about it right there. And we'll come back to that at the very end today. But go back now to Mark chapter 9. And then in light of this, now we can start unlocking verse 2. So Christ has just told them, there's going to be an event. I know I just told you, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and you're going to die a probably a violent death, especially, of course, if you're a first century Jewish man. You're probably going to die a violent death. And yet, despite that, verse 2, he does say, despite that, somebody, some of you are, are, are going to see something phenomenal, spectacular before that takes place. Verse 2, here we are, six days later. Okay, six days later, which is an odd little time marker here. Okay, when you look at this passage, notice how, notice how Christocentric this is. It's all focused on Christ. It revolves around Christ. It emphasizes Christ. Christ is front and center. You're going to see right here, we see that it's Christ who takes the three. It says Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. We're going to see it's Jesus who's transfigured. It's Jesus who talks with Moses and Elijah. It's Jesus who who is addressed by Peter. It's Jesus, not Moses and Elijah, it's Jesus who is spoken about by the cloud when the cloud shows up, and that's the Father, that's the Theophany, we'll get there. But it's Jesus who the emphasis is on whenever the cloud arrives, and then it's Jesus who remains behind. Everything is about Christ in this passage. Okay, so when you see in verse 2, it says six days later. And already, though, this is a very unusual time reference in the Gospel of Mark. When you read the Gospel of Mark, what that means is when you read through the Gospel of Mark, you don't find a lot of instances where Mark is giving us a time lapse of, you know, this happened at this date, and then, you know, a year later this happened, or six months later this happened. But the fact that he does point that out here is in, it's indicating something. It's indicating that it's tied together with what this last passage was. That's why it's so important to look at everything as a whole. Okay, so six days later, on a high mountain, you have something taking place. Now, just just pause here and ask yourself uh, regarding mountains. There's a lot in this passage that connects to the Old Testament. Six days is a connection to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, Exodus 24 says, The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. Then Moses could enter into it. There There was a period... It was almost like a waiting period for Moses before he could go onto Mount Sinai and meet with God. There was a six-day lapse, and then he could go up. Here's the thing, though. Whenever you see the phrase high mountain or mountain in the Scriptures, it's never, it's never random. Okay? Mountains are always significant, and they are always a place of divine revelation or divine glory whenever God shows up and God meets with people. What is the first reference to mountain in the entire Bible? Or put it this way, where's the first mountain that you see in the Bible? Where's the first time you see a mountain? Okay, It's kind of a trick question because it doesn't explicitly state the word mountain the first time you see a mountain, but it's the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is on a mountain. We know that because the four rivers flow down from that mountain. You know it's up top somewhere. It's on a mountaintop, and everything trickles down from that mountain. And then also, where's the next place? Well, you see the, the Noah's Ark winding up, landing on Mount Ararat. You have Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is taking Isaac up to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. 
And then on that same mountain, years later, Solomon goes around and he's going to actually finally build the temple, construct a temple. Where does he construct that temple? Mount Moriah, the same mountain where Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Um, of course, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, of course, is where Moses goes up and has, has meets with God. But also even in the New Testament, where do you have mountains in the New Testament? The Sermon on the Mount, like we saw today. Whenever, whenever Christ commissions his disciples to go forth into all the world, he says, meet me on a mountain. So mountains, mountains are always, there's always a reason why. And even the pagans understood this. Remember in the Old Testament, where do the pagans go and worship all the time? The, the scriptures, they, it references the high places. They, they want to go up to the top. They know that. The Tower of Babel was meant to be some kind of construction that's, that's a ziggurat. It looks like a mountain. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to, so, so that's the idea here. A mountain, that's where God meets with his people. And even the pagans understood this. And so this is no accident that Christ, you know, it, it's not like it's just some random place that they got to, Christ just has to pick something. It's, you know, think about it. They're already worn out. They're already tired. They're already beat up just physically. And now Christ is like, all right, guys, and now we're going to scale this mountain just for the heck of it, just for the sake of going up to the mountain. No, there's a reason why Christ says, let's go to the mountain. And there's a reason why Mark here is recording it for us. He's setting, he's putting the bells in our head to realize this is a very special divine revelation, divine something that's going to happen from God, a divine uh, manifestation, something that's going to be unique. And that's why they go up to this mountain. It's a place where God meets with his people. And of course, James, John, Peter, they, they're the ones who, who go up. Um, you know, in Deuteronomy 19, it says you need eyewitnesses to establish a matter, two or three witnesses. So that's no accident. He brings them up. These are also the three that have already been eyewitnesses to Christ raising Jairus' daughter from the dead. So there's something there, because we're going to see in Christ the transfiguration of some kind of weird image or picture of, of, of this exaltation of Christ, maybe some kind of resurrected, glorious form of Christ. Okay, so, so all these factors are in play when he takes them up, and then it says, Jesus is transfigured. It's very simple, very straightforward, and he was transfigured before them. The word transfigured means metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, the, you know, that's where you get the word metamorphosis. He was, he was radically changed. That's what happened. He radically altered. He's standing there before them, and then he, boom, before you know it, he's radically altered. Now, here's the thing on this, okay? What is this, though? This is the, I tell you, whenever we're looking at this uh, earlier and then studying, studying for it all week, it's a weird, it's, it really is. It's, it's kind of a, a strange, the whole thing is kind of strange. So they're standing there, and all of a sudden, Christ is radiant and, and, and glorious before them. But here's the catch, okay? Here's the thing. I don't think this is quite a theophany in the sense of what we're going to see in a minute, which is a theophany when the cloud arrives. This is something else. This is something, this is something like an, an anticipation, an anticipation or a guarantee of something still to come. Okay, why does he say this? Why does he give them this? This is the whole point. When you think of what's going on in the mind of Peter and James and John and all the other disciples, Remember what they're expecting Christ to do. When the Messiah shows up, he is going to stop all of our foes. There's not going to be any suffering. There's not going to be any rejection. In fact, our Messiah is going to go and start rejecting everybody else and cleaning house. But Christ shows up, and he tells them, no, you guys got it backwards. Everything about my life 
from the time I've taken on flesh until the time I die is going to be a life, more or less, of suffering and rejection and persecution and ultimately death. And remember how bewildered the disciples were. The disciples hear this, and they're like, you're out of your mind. Peter even rebukes them for it, right? And so in light of all of that, here is what you have as a response from God, because God is so gracious. These guys need to be strengthened. They're not. And the words of Christ regarding his rejection have to be vindicated, have to be validated. So when you're looking at why it is that Christ is transfigured, why it is that they have this this, this situation before them, it is to, to strengthen them, to establish them, to help them, the disciples. And it's just like what happened to Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah really gets me. When you read Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6, and he's about, to, he's about to be given a mission that's something like this. Isaiah, I want you to go preach your guts out, and nobody's going to listen. And in fact, they're going to turn on you, and they're going to persecute you, and they're going to reject you, and they're going to think you're mad, and you're the scum of the earth. And that's your mission. That's the ministry you're going to be involved in. Same thing with Ezekiel, right? And then Isaiah's even like, Lord, how long? You know, and, and, and God's like, you know, until all the houses are raised, until everything's taken to the ground, because the judgment of, of, of Babylon's coming against the Israelites. And you know what God does for Isaiah before he sends him out? He gives him a theophany. He gives him a revelation of himself. A glimpse of him sitting on his throne, his train filling, the robes of his train filling the temple. He's surrounded by angels, and that's where they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. That's why God gives him that revelation, to strengthen him, to encourage him. Same thing with Ezekiel. Ezekiel has one of the most astonishing, strange theophanies that, that a person can ever read about in the Scriptures, in Ezekiel. But then he's given that same task. And so in a sense, these guys are in that same situation where they've, they've been given a task, right? You are to go out and you are to, be, you're to, you're to suffer rejection and persecution and ultimately death. And they're like, you're out of your mind. And we saw that last week. But even, even after all the arguments we saw Christ give them last week where he's talking about it's worth it, guys, because otherwise you're going to lose your soul. You don't follow me, you lose your soul, so it's better to follow me and suffer and not lose your soul than to not follow me and lose your soul and live a nice, cushy life, and then you die and you go to hell. That's not, that's not. But even after all of that, God is still not done strengthening them, encouraging them, confirming them. And so that's what you have here. And that's why, look what happens, okay? Where do you see in the Scriptures, think about this, all right? So Christ is obviously, he's dazzling. Look at the description in verse 3. It says, his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And there's, there's different allusions here to Daniel and other places, but here's, what, here's what's happening. Christ is saying, here is what to come. This is what's to come. I've spoken to you about my humiliation, my suffering, my rejection, my death, but here am I in exaltation. Here am I victorious. Here am I after all of the... Everything has been done. There's a, there's a point that is going to come where there's going to be exaltation. There's going to be glory. There's going to be splendor. There's going to be joy. This is a preview of that. And the other thing is this. You know, we look at the resurrection and the glorified body, and, and we think, wow, you know, that is like... that. 
it's like a human being changed into something that's beyond human, but still human. But I think what we have to realize is, is we have to reconsider this, okay? What are we supposed to be like without sin? Without the fall, what were we supposed to be like, and what are what is our ideal state? When we take when when we talk of the resurrected body, you know, whenever whenever Moses goes up onto Sinai, and he comes down, and you remember whenever he tries to go to the Israelites after being in the presence of God, and they can't tolerate that. Remember, because he's glowing, he's, he's, he's beaming. There's something about him, about his figure. And they're saying, Moses, you can't come, don't come any closer until, until you put the veil on your face, until you, get, you, know, until you cover up, because it's too much for us. It's overwhelming, right? That, that's what's going on here, something like that. There's so much of the radiance and the glory and the majesty of God that's taking place in Christ right now, to Christ when he's transfigured. It's, almost, it's too much almost. It's too much just for your ordinary situation. When Moses comes down, you see something of that. When Stephen, right before Stephen is martyred, you see something like that. It says he's shining. His face is, is shining. Okay? Now, here's the thing. In the eschaton, in the end time, when we are resurrected, when we're talking about glorified bodies, when we're talking about things as they're to be, we're talking about something like this. When we're walking around shining and manifesting the glory of God wherever we go. But it's not going to be overwhelming. It's not going to be like, Moses, I can't handle this. There's too much holiness, too much glory. We'll all be like that. And that's, this is what that, this is. It's a preview of this. It's a preview of that condition. And they need this so that they realize, okay, okay, we can breathe, take a breath. All the suffering, all the persecution, all the rejection, all the heartache, all the loss, it's worth it. It's going to be okay. Because there's an exalted state coming. All right? Now, look at verse four, and this is the—I was thinking of this earlier, man. This is just this is the weirdest part. Elijah shows up along with Moses, and they're talking to Jesus. And somebody asked me this morning, "How did they know this was Elijah and Moses?" Right? They're not wearing name tags, and that's that's exactly right. How do they know this? Well, it's because of the conversation they're having. In Luke, it tells us what they were talking about. And I think that's the most important thing to, to consider. In Luke, it tells us they're talking about the exodus of Christ, the departure of Christ. Your translation will say departure. The word there is the same word for exodus. And we think of the exodus when? In Moses. We have the book, Exodus. But in the Bible, realize this, there's exoduses throughout the Old Testament. They're all over the place. Abraham goes down to Egypt with his wife. And when he's in Egypt, they take his wife because she's beautiful. And she's about to be married or someone's about to sleep with her or something. And then God appears and says, don't you do this. This is the wife of a prophet. You better give her back. And they don't just give the wife back. You remember what else they give? He's already, he starts receiving because of her, but also because of him. He starts receiving cattle and gold and all kinds of stuff. What's he doing? He's plundering the Egyptians. Before Moses comes and plunders them, Abraham plunders them. And then what's he do? He gets out of there. It's a departure. That's an exodus. Same thing with Jacob. Jacob goes down to Laban looking for a wife. Winds up with two wives and then four wives. And then not only four wives, he starts getting all the cattle. He starts getting all the goods. And you notice what he does. He has to run for his life to get out of there. He departs from there. That's an exodus. 
He plunders them, and then he leaves. And then, of course, the Exodus, whenever Moses and the, the, the Israelites, they, of course, they leave, but they leave with all the gold and all the, all the goods of Egyptians. They leave and they depart. That's an Exodus. All of these Exoduses in the Old Testament are pointing to the great Exodus that Christ is going to take whenever he comes to earth. Christ, when he comes to earth, he comes and he plunders the strong man, does he not? He comes and takes all the, all the goods, all the gold, all the spoils, all the people that belong to the enemy, and he takes them up. We were all that way. If you're in Christ today, man, there was at one time you were a, you, you, you were a slave to the enemy. You were a slave in Egypt. And Christ came, and by his grace and his power, he delivered you out of that. He took you out of that. But in order to do this, in order for him to achieve this exodus, this deliverance, he himself has to go through the struggle, through the death, through the curse, so that we can be delivered from the curse. That's what he's talking about. That's the conversation they're having. That's really remarkable. That's what they're talking about. And you see that in Luke. But here's what else. So, Okay, so as far as Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Moses were the only two um, who went up to Mount Sinai. They were the only two. And both of them go up to Mount Sinai in a state of duress. So they go up there, especially Elijah. Elijah, remember, when he goes on to Sinai, he goes up there, and he's saying, God, they've killed all the prophets. Jezebel's out for his, trying to kill him. He goes up on Mount Sinai saying, God, they've killed everybody. There's no one left. And that's, of course, where you get the 7,000 but that have not bent the knee. But he's saying, God, there's no one left. And then what does God do? God shows up, and God, God gives him a... A, a, a revelation of himself to Elijah to strengthen him. Same thing with Moses. Moses goes up. The second time he goes up, he goes up there and needs new tablets, new, new commandments, because he had just thrown down the first ones because they were worshiping idols. So he goes up the second time. There is a state of duress down here below. And he goes up there. God shows up. And so these are eschatological prophets. These are also prophets that, that God has already appeared to. Eschatological meaning in time. They are... They are, they are prophets. What, what this means is that Moses was the first liberator of the Israelites, but he was also the one that promised that there's going to be someone way down the road who's going to be like me, but better. And so expect him. And then Elijah, of course, is the same way. For when Elijah comes, it says in Malachi, and we've seen this already, but when Elijah comes, it will be the fulfillment of all things. The fulfillment of all things will be in the beginning. And so both of these guys are to be expected in a certain sense at the end of time. That's why you have them here, okay? Now, I mean, is that still not? I mean, it, it is. Look, it's like this. These are the preeminent figures of Old Testament history, right? They really are, especially Moses and to an extent Elijah. But here's what God is doing in this. When God shows up, when Christ is there, and then God brings these two guys out to talk to Christ... What do you think Peter is doing in his head? Peter, the guy who just rebuked Jesus and told Jesus he's wrong and he's got it all wrong, he's, it's all backwards. But now whenever Elijah and Moses appear and, and they realize the two preeminent figures of, of Old Testament history and they realize that Elijah and, 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 uh, and Moses are friends with Christ and they're on the same page. Don't you know, this is what's cool, don't you know that Peter is thinking, oh, okay, all right, he's... He knows what he's talking about. Right? Elijah's friends with him. Abraham or Moses here, Moses' buddies, they're all buddies. Okay, so he's got to figure it out. I'm gonna now I can now I can kind of sit back, relax, take a deep breath, and just 
worry about what Christ tells us to do and I'll go do it. Okay? Especially in the light, in light of the suffering to come. However, that being the case, Peter, in verse 5, says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And then it tells us why he tells him, why he says this in verse 6. It tells him why he blurted anything out at all. I mean, what would you do if you saw that? Right? Would you? I don't know. I always, it, we, and we always know, okay, Peter's the guy. He, he just lunges into things and he doesn't really think and he just, whatever comes to his mind, he just blurts it out. And, and of course, you see that here because in verse 6, it tells us why he said what he said. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. That's the proper response, by the way. Terrified. A lot of times we think, I hear it all the time when you evangelize. Oh, you know, I'm not, when I see God, I'm going to tell him this, and I'm going to tell him that. You know, and I, I'm going I'm to real. No, when, when God appears, you're terrified because God is holy, God is glorious, God is holy, he's, or he's, he's righteous. God is otherworldly. When you say that God is holy, you're saying he's different, he's set apart, he's something else than anything that we've ever encountered. This is what's going on here. There is an ex- there's, a, there's something supernatural, and it's to such an extent, they're all terrified. Peter blurts out, it's kind of like uh, whenever, whenever you're in an awkward situation, you don't really know what to say, so you just say something, just to say something. You ever done that? I do it probably every day, every week. And you're like, oh man, that was, why didn't I just say that? But you don't know what else to say, so you just say it. That's what's going on here. Or I wish I had more of this personality. The right personality, like James and John, they're sitting back not saying anything at all. Right? Some personalities, you're like, if you're in an awkward situation, you just let it kind of be awkward and just move on with it. You don't have to fix things. You don't have to just do anything about it. Just chill out. Well, Peter's not that way. Peter's got to do something. He's overwhelmed. He's terrified. He's got to fix it. He's got to make it right. And so he's like, I know what we'll do. Let's make some tabernacles. And what do you think he's doing there? And, I, and I'm, I'm, you know, if you think about it, so there's a few options here. First of all, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, that's an option. Maybe he was thinking something along those lines. That's, the Feast of Booths was to commemorate the exodus in the wilderness. So what you would do, remember in the uh, Israelites, you can see this in the Old Testament, they have flat roofs. Okay? And so what you would do is you would go on, on your roof for seven days of the year, and you would bring up some leaves and some sticks, and you would make a little hut or hovel up there on your flat roof, and you would live outside for seven days. And that was to commemorate the Israelites in the wilderness, and God's redeeming them out of the wilderness. And that was this, this celebration that they would do. It's called the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. So uh, maybe that's an option. I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily think that. I think this is what Peter's thinking. I don't think that Peter thinks that Elijah and, and, and Moses are going anywhere after this. I think he thinks that they are here to stay. And because of that, he's trying to figure out a way to, to, to some kind of permanent structure for other people to be able to come to this mountain and receive some kind of glimpse or revelation from God also. Something like that. I mean, why else, right? Because I, I don't see how he would know that these guys are, are not going to stay, stay around for very long. Just a conversation with Christ, and then boom, they're out. He doesn't know that. So he's like, boom, let's make this permanent. Let's do something about this. Um, but here's the thing, okay? In the midst of all of this, in verse 7, you see this. A cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Now, same thing with, like we said with mountain. Same thing with clouds. 
Clouds are not just clouds. Clouds don't just appear. In fact, you can read, I've, I've, I was reading um, some commentators, and they were, and this is, this is fascinating. When you, when, you, so when you think of the earth that we live in, the earth itself is meant to, so the tabernacle was meant to be a miniature replica of the cosmos of earth itself. So whenever, and earth itself is meant to be a, a representation of, in a sense, heaven. And, and, and so when you look at the clouds, the clouds themselves are meant to represent some kind of supernatural order of things. They're not supernatural clouds in the sense that we think of them, but they're meant to point us to something else. So when you see clouds in the Bible or you see clouds outside, God has given us clouds so that they could point to certain supernatural realities that you find in the Bible. I see a cloud, I'm like, oh yeah, man, I remember seeing the cloud in the tabernacle and in, in the temple and the cloud would lead the Israelites through the wilderness by day. And, and same thing with stars. You know, the stars are meant to point to certain things. And that's the beauty of being a Christian, right? You go around, and you look at the world, you look at the earth, you look at all the things, and, and all of these things point to certain things, certain realities about, about God. When you look at clouds, though, and I just mentioned a bunch of them, but clouds, every time the tabernacle, when the tabernacle was erected, when the temple was constructed, both times at the end, you know what took place? The cloud comes. And that cloud is a theophany or a revelation of God himself, God manifesting himself because of this. In other words, he's in the temple and tabernacle, he's saying, this is where I dwell. This is my dwelling place. This is being confirmed. It's confirmation. So when the cloud shows up, who is the new temple? Well, Christ is the new temple. Christ is the temple. The cloud shows up in confirmation of the temple that's already there on the mountain. Just like Sinai. Also on Sinai, what do you have? You have the cloud overwhelming Moses when he goes up to meet with God in the tabernacle and in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Remember the incense they'd bring in there? And supposedly, you can, read, you can read history on this and commentators, they'll say in the Holy of Holies, there would be so much incense in that place, they would make it where you couldn't see anything. There would be so much smoke from the incense. Because the incense in the cloud was meant to represent this glory cloud, the Shekinah cloud, right? That's what this is. And any time this happens, this is a revelation, a manifestation of God, and it's overwhelming. And in Luke, this is the spot where it says they were terrified and they hit the deck when this takes place. They're on their faces. Where else would you be? They hit the deck. And that's what you have in the midst of all of this. And of course, that, that is, this is the theophany here. This is the theophany. This is also, now notice the words here. Okay, the, the, the words, listen to him. That reminds us of Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses is told, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet. And Moses is telling the Israelites, he will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen. You shall listen to him. God here is saying what Moses was saying in Deuteronomy. Here is the man who we've been waiting for. This is confirmation. Also, you need two witnesses in the Old Testament. Remember, that's a big deal. Two witnesses. This is the second time the voice from the cloud has appeared. The first time it happens at Christ's baptism. The Father appears, says, this is my Son, who I'm well pleased with. That's the first one, and this, this is the second one. It's confirmation. It also shows the uniqueness of Christ. And this is probably my, my favorite part, because think about it. God says nothing about Moses and Elijah here. All of this centers around Christ. He's not saying, hey guys, listen to Jesus, but also you know, keep listening to Elijah, keep listening to Moses. And it's not to say these guys are, are bad. It's not to say that they're necessarily relegated to the background altogether. But you remember when Paul talks about this like in 1 Corinthians. 
He says, yeah, there, there, was, there was some glory in the old covenant. There was some splendor there, but now there's something more glorious, more splendid. And so Christ overwhelms both Moses and Elijah. And that's quite significant, right? Because these are the prototypical, the guys, if you're talking about Old Testament history, and in this whole picture, you're, they're, they're not even in the picture anymore, it's almost like. You know, they're kind of off to the side. It's all about Christ. Listen to him. And so, of course, that goes back to the situation with Peter. Because Peter was still wondering, should we listen to this guy? The crowd is still wondering, should we really listen to this guy? And don't we ourselves look at this and we say, should we really listen to this guy? When it comes to us, in our culture, and in our individual state, even as Christians, here's the thing, okay? And, and, and this is really, let's just pause here for a second. And just think about this. Okay? We have this same thing. Right here, they're told, listen to him. Peter, James, John, you guys listen to him. We, being God's people, and even if we weren't God's people, the fact that God is God over everybody, in the sense of he created them, he made them, we are all obligated, called to listen to Jesus Christ. And I know we say, well, we do. And to an extent, we do, by God's grace, right? We do listen to him. And I know, especially if you're in Christ, of course, we do listen to him. And we appreciate his word. But here's the thing. We always, always, always will be fighting the temptation and the tendency to, to put some other authority over the authority that we have from Jesus. And, and so, for instance, if you're asking, okay, well, where, how can we listen to Jesus today? Right? How can we have this experience today? Well, it's in the word. Listen to God in the Word. Listen to Christ in the Word. That's what it says in Hebrews. It's talking about in, the, in these last days, in these latter days, Christ, God has given us His Son. And we have His Son written about here in the Scriptures, speaking in the Scriptures. So when you're looking at, well, how, how, can we, how, can we, how can we not listen to Him? Well, it's very easy. I gave the illustration here. Um, think about this. Whenever... I mean, who are some people in culture today that we consider just really, really smart people? Just bright, outstanding people in our culture. And of course, it depends on what spectrum you're on and you know, who you listen to and all that. But one guy that very quickly comes to my mind is a guy like Jordan Peterson. Right? Jordan Peterson says a lot of good things. He says a lot of truthful things. But he says a lot of things that are absolutely not true and not right. And so a lot of times what happens is, is especially in the, the younger crowds and maybe older crowds, but especially it's like, okay, Jordan Peterson, man, he's a smart guy. He's a very uh, clever guy. He's a good speaker, all of this. And, and so because of that, if he says something or teaches something that seems to be inconsistent with God's word, there is a real struggle in a lot of people, right, to go with God's word over Jordan Peterson. And it, it can be, I'm just using him as an example. It can be any, anybody. Um, I always think about, especially when, when you're evangelizing and, and doing certain things like that, I can't tell you every day people say, well, you know, science says this. Or the science community says that. And then you're like, well, who's this? Who, okay, name a few. Like, what do you mean by science community or sci the scientists, right? Because, you know, they're all, I can name a lot of scientists on the other side too. But here's the thing. They say, well, you know, I know the Bible says this, but the science community says that. And so that's a real temptation for Christians. I know that. I was once in that spot. I remember in college, going to college, you know, and you're, you're trying to figure things out, and you're hearing these guys who have multiple PhDs and, or scientists themselves. 
They themselves are scientists, and they're saying, yeah, I know that you've heard all of that, but you've been brainwashed, man. You've been, you don't, you're out of your mind. Let me, t- let me tell you what, what is really the case. And then they'll go on telling you you're a sophisticated monkey or a, you, know, you came from this or came from that. This is the point, though. In our culture, we, like, you know, we say, oh, it's a Christian culture, this and that. I don't think so. And a lot of times it's because of this. We have other authorities that are more authoritative in our lives than Jesus Christ's authority is. In general, I'm speaking in general. We're not. That is, and, and, and here's the other thing too. We'll look, at our, look at our culture right now. I can name, look, there's three things right now that I think of and I'm like, this is, this is it. Okay, so, so the chosen, of course, because I mention it a lot. <laughs> Why not here too? Uh, but no, this, and I'm not, this isn't like, uh, you know, I'm just going to like kick the chosen around. But think about this, think about this, okay? Remember the ad in the Super Bowl, he gets us? Okay, unfortunately, I watched that, the, not the Super Bowl, but the ad. Have you seen the ad? He gets us, okay? When you look at these ads, or you look at the chosen, or you look at, um, let's, let's start with those two, and you look at those things, and you say, okay, what's the problem with he gets us? And you're like, yeah, it's a nice, fluffy little, oh, kumbaya kind of, but it, here's the thing, okay? What they're saying about Jesus is not what Jesus actually is depicted as in the Scriptures. You see what I mean? So what happens is, is we say, okay, the Scriptures, God says, listen to him. But then we turn around and we make up a fictitious kind of Jesus. And we say, no, 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 listen to that, not this. Because that is more palpable and more tolerable for our society. This is not. So we give them that Jesus and not this Jesus. You see? Or look at the revival in Kentucky. And this is not to say, oh, it's, for, it's a legit revival or it's not a legit revival. I don't personally think it's legit. I haven't seen anything that makes it seem that it's legit. There's a lot of emotion. Emotion is good. Emotion is the way that God has wired us. But when you're looking at it, right? What you see, here's the thing, okay? And the reason, this is the main reason why. When you look at what happens in certain situations like this, um, the revival, I mean. Revivals are good, by the way. Revivals are good, man. Revivals have happened in history. God pours out His Holy Spirit and things happen. But anytime, every time you look into history and you see a legitimate revival, you know what it's centered around? The Word of God. Every single time. When revival broke out in Jonathan Edwards' day, you know what he was doing? He was reading by candlelight, or preaching by candlelight, but reading as he's preaching, right? So he's just kind of, can you imagine, you know? Verifies claim about suffering, rejection. God takes Christ's side. Okay, Moses challenged. And that's how he, you know, I mean, it wasn't that dry, but it's dry. But it's word-based. It's centered around Christ. The Holy Spirit shows up, and then things begin to move. But it always focuses around Christ. You can go back and you can see this. And that's the thing, right? So that's what I'm saying. And I'm not, again, this is not necessarily just to knock the chosen or just to knock the, but it's to say this. In our culture today and in our lives personally, and this comes down to sin as well. I mean, let's, let's, let's go there for a second. Because it's easy to knock the chosen, right? Okay, let's look, at, let's look at Ryan. When I'm in the kitchen and I see a pile of dishes and I'm like, man, I, I got a lot going on. And, I, and my wife, she's six months pregnant, right? And I'm like, but honey, I got a lot going on. Okay, at that point, what am I doing? 
I'm no longer listening to Christ. I'm listening to my own flesh, my own self. And that's, of course, now I'm in trouble. The, my wife, she probably won't watch this, but, you know, that's, that's a fact, right? You guys, and, she, and here's the thing, okay? And I do try to do dishes. But the point is, you guys get the point. It's easy to, we have bitterness. We have anger in our hearts towards someone. Somebody wrongs us. There's nothing worse than being wrong. There's nothing worse to be back, than being backstabbed. We know that. What does Christ say about that? How are we to respond? Turn the other cheek. No, I'm not, right? I'm not going to do that. No way. I'm not, I, nope. What does God say? Listen to Christ on this. Listen to Christ. You see that? This, that's where it's hard. It's easy to knock all the other stuff. What about our own lives? Do we listen to Christ in our own lives? Speeding. I, I was very convicted going back to Lubbock driving, and I was listening to this podcast, and they were talking about, just ran flippantly, the guy's like, okay, so they're talking about laws, and you know, is it, you know, is it right and proper, and you know, is it, is it a sin to speed, and I'm, I'm doing probably like 70, I'm doing 80, 85, <laughs> and it's 75, and they're talking about it, and I'm like, and he said, of course it is, of course it's a sin, and he's breaking it down, and he's bringing it out, and I'm like, oh man, he's right, right. So what do you do? But God, I got to get there. You know, I got to. No, listen to him. Listen to him. It's hard. That's the whole point, right? It's hard. But Peter needs to be told that. We need to be told that. Why do we listen to him? Because he is, he is the beloved son. He knows more than we do. And, and that's what this whole thing is about. So, um, the last thing, two last things. So Jesus remains behind. This is the last thing, actually. And then, um, and then we'll close. But look at verse 6, okay? They didn't know what to answer. The cloud shows up. The Father says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. That's verification that, Peter, you're wrong. He's right. Get in line. Don't try to rebuke my son. Don't try to reject. Just get, you know, follow him. That's all you have to do. Isn't it weird? We think, man, how simple is the life of a Christian? All you have to do is follow Jesus. And then we muddle it, and it, be, it is the most challenging thing because of our flesh. I get that. But it, it really, I mean, it's like, it's a, it's a paradox. It should be easy, but it's the most difficult thing in the world. And that's why last week he's talking about the cross. He's talking about denying yourself. Christ knows it's hard. But that's no excuse. He, he, tell, you know, he calls us, okay? Now, here's the thing. Look who remains behind. Moses and Elijah, they're gone. Christ remains. And you know what that's telling us indirectly? That Christ is the only one who's going to do this. Moses can't do this. Elijah can't do this. Christ alone is going to do this. This work of suffering, this work of rejection, this work of humiliation that leads to exaltation, that leads to victory, that leads to triumph. Moses isn't going to bring this about. Elijah's not going to bring this about. Christ is going to bring this about. Here he is. And that's a good thing for the disciples because that's the only one that only person who stays around. Now, this is again a momentary reprieve from their call to suffer. Here's again thinking about us. They needed this, right? Christ has said the rest of your life. I mean, think about how I mean, think about how what, you know, and from a worldly perspective, that's a bummer, you know, to to realize, "Hey man, I'm just enjoying life. I'm fishing with my dad. I'm making a good living." All these guys, they're fishermen, and they're, you know, they're bringing in good catches, usually, maybe not. And, you know, sometimes there's obviously drought. But they're, you know, life is just going as it is. And then all of a sudden, Christ shows up, 
and messes everything up from a world's perspective. Their life is no longer cozy. It's no longer comfortable. It's no longer just just doing your thing. Christ is saying from this point forward in your life, expect rejection, suffering, and death. That's going to be your life. That's your lot. And, And so what's going on here is that Christ, God, is giving them a reprieve, a break in their suffering, a break in this call to suffer and be rejected. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to give you something. You need this. I'm going to appear to you on this mountain. I'm going to show up, and I'm going to strengthen you, and I'm going to, I'm going to confirm you. I'm going to, to help you out. And here's where we come into play. Because every single Lord's Day, this is amazing. Think of this. Every single Lord's Day, this is exactly what God does for us. You know, you have it. I, I was talking to a guy this morning, and he's like, you know what? You are exact. I have, I have a lot of times prayed, God, give me this mount of transfiguration. I want, to be, I want to have, like, show up like you showed up for these guys. I want to have that. He's like, man, God, God never did that. Until you read this, and until you participate. Here's, here's the thing. Go to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. I'll show you why this happens every single Lord's Day. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Look at verse 22 22 through 24. Okay, But you have come to Mount Zion. There's another mountain. You've come to Mount Zion. Not you will come. Not you're going to come. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. You know what happens every time you come to the divine service on the Lord's Day? We ascend up into the mountain. We ascend on this mountain. God comes and and, and God speaks with us. God meets with us. God speaks to us in His Word. God speaks to us in the sacraments. God speaks to us even as we, uh, when we're praying, there's a participation in a sense when God is responding to those things. God shows up and meets with us every Lord's Day. That's the beauty of this. That's why, you know, sometimes you'll hear the word worship. And worship, you know, I'm not going to pick on that word, but the, worship is one-sided. Worship is what I do for God. I worship God. So we do worship God, right? But the reason why the, the better terminology is something like a divine service is because this is not just us meeting with God. Primarily, it's God coming and meeting with us. That's what we need. And that's why every Lord's Day is like this, because what do we do? Whenever, you know what's going to happen the very next scene, we'll see this next week. After this... Elijah, uh, uh, Moses, they go away. Christ is there on the mountain. And guess what the next task is for the disciples? Go back down the mountain. It's time to get back into the fight. It's time to get back into the warfare. It's time to struggle. It's time to wage against sin. It's time to wage against the world. It's time to wage against your flesh. We would all like to just hang out with each other all the days for the rest of our life in church. Hanging out, worshiping God, talking about God, eating together, all that stuff, right? That would be glorious. These guys, that would be glorious just to stay on the mountain, just hang out with Moses, Elijah, talk to Christ about. But Christ is saying, guys, it's not time for that yet. That's us as well, right? It's not time for that yet. We get it once every seven days. 
But that's what we need, right? So when we have this once every seven days, this is when we ascend up the mountain. God meets with us. God strengthens us. God helps us out. He nourishes us. And then he says, go back down and get to work. Because there's fighting to do. There's work left to do on this life, in this life. There's warfare to wage against sin, against the devil, against the world. So we do have our mount of transfiguration in a sense, right? We do have this, this, this aspect where, where we can go and uh, meet with God and you know, make tabernacles and, and bask here and, and everything else. But, but, we got to go back. We're still in the fight. And that's what we do. We go out, we fight, we labor, we struggle, we're persecuted, we're reviled. We make some gains, we get beat up a little bit, maybe take some losses, take some hits, you do good, you take a couple steps, right? It's a fight. But all the while, we know that Christ is strengthening us and He's going to meet with us every Lord's Day. He's going to meet with us on, the, on Mount Zion amongst His holy people. And then um, Second Peter, we are going to end with this because this points us to the Word. Okay, Second Peter... Going back to that same passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, at the end there, because again, he says this, and this is, this is amazing. When you say, I would love to have this mount of transfiguration experience, of course, right? But Peter says, yeah, we had that, we saw that. But we have something even more certain, even more, he says, what's the word he uses? Verse 19, more sure. Something more sure than even God showing up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You know what that is? The Word of God. The Word of God is that thing for us. He says this, We ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with Him on the holy mountain. So we have, so we have the prophetic Word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. He's saying this, you guys, we've had this experience, but you have something even better. It's the Scriptures. It's the Word of God. And you go to those Scriptures, and you'll find out what Christ has spoken. You'll, you'll find out what Christ did. You'll find out the glory of God, the way He's revealed Himself, the power of God, the splendor of God, everything else. It's right here in the Scriptures. And this goes back to everything else that I just talked about, the chosen and all that, you know, the, the, the emotion-driven revivals. You don't need that stuff if you already have God's Word working as it should work. God uses ordinary means to bring about this extraordinary transformation, this spiritual transformation in, in your life and in culture and in the world around us. And in certain seasons, He will give a little uptick to that, and there will be a revamp in that, a little more energy, a little more power. But in general, through the Word... This is already taking place day after day after day. These, these, these revelations of God, these power of God experiences as we're reading the Word, whether or not we see it. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God, right? Where can you find God speaking today? It says it right there. Holy men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. It was inscripturated, written down. Here we have it in our hands. That's where we have it. Isn't that amazing? God has given us, just like He did with those guys. Guys, you're going to struggle. You're going to be persecuted. You're going you're to suffer. It's going to be a hard life. It's a hard life ahead. And we know it. 
But come back every six days, every seven days, God's going to show up, strengthen you, help you out, re-energize you, and send you back over and over and over and over until this seventh day never ends, or for us, first day, never ends. That's heaven. That's glory. So be encouraged, right? And we have the Word. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for your Word. Thank you, oh, God, that you have considered our weaknesses, our our frailties, our needs, the fact that we are people of flesh, people of dust. We are people who get weary, and, and we, we are people who doubt. And we thank you, O oh God, for your constant, constant, constant grace in our life, that you're always bringing us back, recalling us back to the things of you, giving us your word. Or thank you especially for your presence. But we know that that is something that, that that's that's. The paramount thing in life, O oh God, that your presence goes with us. Help us, O oh Lord, as we go forth. Give us grace to battle valiantly, courageously, persistently, to not flag, to not, uh, to not turn back, to keep our hands to the plow. Lord, please, O oh God, continue to strengthen us every Lord's Day. Um, and as we're out in the battle, that you would continue feeding us with your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please go ahead and stand and, and we'll have our, um, our benediction and then...